you have your Bibles, uh, John chapter 12 this morning, that's where we'll be, uh, John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 12. And it may be uh, somewhat odd to be talking about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem to start the last week of his life as we are in the Advent season, uh, celebrating hope and peace and joy and love. Uh, but as we look at the passage today, it really has, like the passages, I just love how God's really worked out these Christmas passages for us uh, in his timing, because they've really had Christmas themes to it. Uh, really, the theme we're going to look at today is Jesus is the king. Uh, he's the victorious king, which is a theme of Christmas. Um, as you're turning to John chapter 12, just listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and by the way, this passage uh, is in a song you'll hear in the cantata next week. I have had on my mind uh, the Emmanuel song. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And I've probably just messed all the words up, but that's okay. That's how it goes. Eman- I, I was here at choir practice Wednesday and they were singing it and I was just over here dancing and singing. That's just a really good song. It comes from a part of the passages it comes from is in this Isaiah Chapter 9, passage, and listen to what the prophet says. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, (laughs) Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, when you sing the Bible, it helps you read it a little bit. It's really good. (laughs) Uh, Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In verse 7, the dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And and over his kingdom to be established and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. That sounds like the coming of a king. Jesus is a king. Uh, And and as he is entering into Jerusalem, he gets the welcome that a king would get. You see, the Jewish people living in that day, they were expecting a king. They were anticipating a king. They were longing for a king because they were under the tyrannical rule of the Roman Empire. And so they had this hope. Now, Now understand what the Jewish people are looking for. They had a hope that there would be a Disney prince, you know, tall, dark, handsome, riding into Jerusalem on a stallion with a million-man army at his back, coming in to overthrow the Romans and to restore temple worship. They were expecting a political leader. They were expecting a military leader. They were expecting someone to come in and save the day. That's the king they were looking for. That's the king they desperately wanted. And yet we know the story of Jesus' birth. He wasn't born in the king's palace. He was born in a lowly stable. He wasn't laid to rest in the royal bed, in the royal chambers. He was laid in a manger where cows and donkeys and sheep ate hay. He grew up a humble life, the son of a carpenter, not the son of a king. 
He learned how to build things out of wood and other materials. And yet here, after three and a half years or three years of ministry, he is greeted with a royal welcome because the people had heard about Lazarus. They had heard about the feeding of the 5,000. They'd heard about the healing of the blind man. They'd heard about this guy who was throwing things in the face of the religious leaders. And on this day that we're looking at, he was the king that they thought they needed, they wanted, they expected. But what we're going to see in the passage is that Jesus is not necessarily, in fact, he's not the king they wanted, but he's the king they desperately needed. He's the king that is talked about in Isaiah that came not to set up an earthly kingdom, but an eternal kingdom. So in John chapter 12, we'll read through this triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which will start the last week of his earthly life. The next day, and this is in verse 12, when the, when the large crowd that had come to the festival, talking about preparing for Passover, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, not a white stallion. A young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified... They remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. But then the Pharisees said to one another, Look, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, uh, Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And then Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, but if it, dies it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servants also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. As we reflect upon this passage, there's three really important things I think that we need to understand. It's first, Jesus is presented to us as a humble king. He is presented to us as a humble king. As he's entering into the city, the people are shouting, Hosanna, which literally means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Psalm uh, 118 says, Lord, save us. 
Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord be blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is good and has given us light. We've already seen Jesus as the light of the world. There are people, although they don't understand completely who Jesus is, you can see the fact they need a Savior. They are shouting, and even though it's a shout of celebration, they are proclaiming, they are pleading, Lord, save us from the things that trouble us. Save us from the Romans. Save us from these religious leaders who don't care about us. Save us from our sin. It's what I believe we would shout today. Save us from the brokenness that is found in our world. Save us from the heartache and the pain. Save us from our temptations. Save us. As Jesus is presented as the humble king, who else would we cry out to to save us? Because only a king can save. He's a humble king because he rides in on a donkey. And thanks to a segment of my Sunday school class this morning, I now have the donkey in the movie Shrek stuck in my mind. (laughs) What was the actor's name? Eddie Murphy. Murphy. So Jesus is riding in on Eddie Murphy. That's what I've got. (laughs) I've had this like ADD moment ever since we talked about that. (laughs) So he's walking in. He's riding in on this lowly... Now, I mean, the donkey is a royal animal, but it's a humble animal. Uh, Zechariah is what is quoted in the passage. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumphant, uh, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious, but he's humble, riding on a donkey. Anybody ever tried to ride a donkey? My grandfather had a donkey Went a long time ago, long, long time ago. And as a young preteen, I tried to ride it. You ever tried to ride a donkey? It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. I did get on and quickly got off. <laughs> not by my choice. They're, they're, they're humble animals. Uh, and you can even see the disciples really didn't know why he chose a donkey. They were still working things out in their minds. But it is a, he is a humble king. And that is how he has presented Philippians Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says this, that Jesus adopted the same, or that we should, we should adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So here's the attitude of Christ Jesus. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, this is a description of Jesus, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of, of a servant. Jesus, the king, the victorious king, he didn't come to be served. He came to do the serving. In verse 8 of Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords, King of kings, Prince of peace, wonderful counselor, 
mighty God. But Jesus came as a humble servant. Now that's not what they were expecting. That's not what they wanted. They wanted their political leader. They wanted their their savior to come in powerful and mighty to raise up a revolutionary army. But God knew and Jesus knew that's not the king they needed. They needed the humble servant who was willing to die on a cross. So he was presented to the people. He was also pursued. The king is pursued. Notice that there were Greeks that were among the people, not uncommon. But these Greek-speaking people, these Greek culture, they were seeking after Jesus. They wanted to meet Jesus. They wanted to talk to Jesus. And here's why. The Greek culture and the Greek people were so devoted to hunting down pure truth. I mean, they wanted to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what was true and what was false. And they've heard about Jesus and said, maybe this guy's got some truth. Now, I know we're in chapter 12, but think way back to chapter 1. Because John's now making a lot of connections with chapter 1. Where he says, in the beginning was the word. That's the word logos in the Greek. In the Greek uh, people, that was their word for the ordering principle of the universe. The Greeks were so committed to trying to figure out how everything was created, how everything works together, uh, that they created a philosophy surrounded around that word logos. To the Greeks, the word was the creating aspect of the universe. The word was... What kept everything in order. The word was their divine thing. And now the Greeks are here thinking, hey, maybe Jesus is this word that we've been looking for. And again, as John writes later, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The ordering principle is Jesus The ordering principle, the the creating principle, the creating agent is Jesus. And so they're here pursuing the truth. They're here pursuing the king, not just the king of the Jewish people, but maybe the king of the world. But again, they don't even understand who they're pursuing. They're pursuing a guy who healed people. They're pursuing a guy who raised a man from the dead. So I want you to think about something this morning. What are we pursuing in our life? How are we pursuing Jesus? What is our expectations of who Jesus is? How do we view Jesus? Is he the Jesus in the pocket who we pull out when we want things? We've talked about that through John's gospel. Is he the Jesus in the genie bottle? Is he the Jesus who we want to be a part of our life only when we need something? Is he the Jesus we pray to in disastrous circumstances? What are we we really looking for when we come to Jesus? When we pursue Jesus, what is it that we're really after? Are we after a political king, a political savior? Are we after a military savior? Or are we after the humble servant, the savior of the world? Why do we pursue Jesus? The reason is we're all sinners. The reason is we've all 
rebelled against God and his laws and his ways, and that's why the world's broken, because we're sinful. So when we pursue Jesus, we should be pursuing him to restore us to a right relationship with God the Father, to forgive us of our sins, to give us eternal life. So we have Jesus presented as a humble king. He is pursued by the Greeks, but then I, want you, I don't want you to miss the king's proclamation. Because Jesus is very much aware of these circumstances. He's very much aware that the vast majority of the people that is with him at this moment want him to be the victorious uh, earthly king who will sit on the throne of David. He is very aware that many of the people, if not all the people, they don't understand who he is. They don't understand what his purpose is, even though he's been preaching and teaching for three years. And so he's going to, in front of this multitude of people who are so excited, he is going to make a very interesting claim. And I'll be honest with you, if you're the PR guy for Jesus, if you're managing his career, you don't want him to say what he's getting ready to say. Because essentially what he's getting ready to say is going to turn a lot of people against him. It's going to put kind of the final wheels in motion that will lead to his crucifixion, which is what he says. Verse 23, here is the king's proclamation. He's been presented. He's been pursued. Now he makes a bold and victorious proclamation. And notice what he says in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man. As we have studied the Gospel of John, we have seen over and over and over Jesus say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Over and over for three years in various situations, he has said, it's not time. It's not time. But here with all these people, he stands up, a hush falls over the crowd. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I mean, in my imagination, this is not in the Bible, but I would imagine some people may have started clapping. Jesus is here. It's time. He's going to conquer the world. But then again, he says, shh, 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 let me finish. Let me finish. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly. Now remember, that word truly, this is very important. He's like, lean in. Guys, everybody, shh, lean in. Very important. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Again, this passage will be tied into John 15 in a few weeks where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. But in this moment, he's using a, an illustration simply this. If you want to grow something, the seed has to be put in the ground. For a plant to grow, the seed has to be buried. The seed has to fall uh, from uh, we had a oh man we had a bush at our house in Oakboro three of them actually uh, I don't know what they were I know this they could grow about 20 feet in a day <laughs> I mean I, I mean they ma I mean massively taller than our house and so we would cut them back all the way to the ground and whatever little berries or whatever was on these little things would fall to the ground too. And we would try to clean up. But you know what happened? When you cut off, and I tried to kill it like 12 times. 
But you, know, you know what happens when all those little berries or whatever they're little called fall to the ground? They're seeds. And so now instead of like three of them, there's 20 of them. I'm like, I mean, what's going on? I tried to kill the plant and more grew back because the seeds were falling to the ground. Jesus says, in order for me to do what I've come to do, I've got to die. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains in itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus has sent into this multitude of people and he says, I'm here to die. Because it is only through my death that fruit can be produced. It is only through the cross that I will find victory over sin and death through the resurrection three days after that. My victory as your king is not a political leader, it's not a military leader, it's a sacrificial servant. It is a lamb who has to be slaughtered. It is a plant that has to die in order for the church to be created, in in order for people to be saved, in order for the helper, the Holy Spirit to come, in order for there to be victory over death, victory over sin, in order for there to be fruit, I have to die. That's the proclamation. That's everything's been leading up to this. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Well, now it's here. And in verse 25, the one who loves... Now, he, he begins to talk to the disciples. He begins to talk to people who are following him. You know, following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus does not require the bare minimum. It requires sacrifice. Jesus says the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life for the world will keep it for Etern- will, uh, for the world will keep it for eternal life. He's saying, look, for many of you who are gonna, many of you are gonna abandon me, many of you aren't gonna follow me, but for those who follow me, you're gonna have to hate your life. You're gonna have to lose your life. Now listen, he is talking literally. All the disciples except for John will lose their life to martyrdom. And John, church tradition tells us, he was poisoned and left for dead. He was exiled and left for dead. They boiled him in oil and left him for dead. And the Lord, you know, had a plan for John. So he lived and he died of old age in Ephesus. But many of the the other 11, the other 10, not including Judas, those other 10 disciples died. Peter was crucified upside down, again, based on church tradition. They died gave their life to Jesus, and they lost it here on earth. But there's also very, there's a lot of symbolism in this passage. We have to love Jesus more than we love our own life. Jesus says in the other Gospels that you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Again, for Peter, it's literal. For us, it's we sacrifice our own agendas. We sacrifice our own desires, and we follow Jesus no matter what. We follow him wherever he goes. And, and, and I know this word hate's a really strong word, but he says you've got to hate your life, which simply says you've got to give it up and give it to me. Remember the other passage where Jesus says you have to hate your mother and father and follow me? Well, he's not saying you literally hate your mom and dad. He's saying the love you have for me is so strong 
How you feel towards other people looks like hate in comparison. That's what it means. We have to, if we love our life, if anyone who loves his life will lose it. If we love our life more than we love Jesus, if we follow our own heart's desires more than the desire of Jesus for our life, then we're going to lose our life. But the one who hates our life and decides to give it all to the Lord, that is what we, we inherit eternal life. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. We've got to follow Jesus. It's always fascinating. I like medieval TV shows, medieval nights, and I'm really fascinated with that time period in history. And there's a lot of different ways to do this, but a lot of times the good kings, they always lead the charge and the knights follow. You know, the knights will follow their king into battle. The knights will lay down their life for the king to protect him. Jesus says, I want you to follow me, but I want you to lay down your life with me. Now, it's not the same. Jesus is laying down his life for the forgiveness of sin. But we have to lay down our old life so Christ can give us a new life. And we have to follow him. That's, that's salvation. Following Jesus. I mean, we've read almost the entire book of John, and we haven't seen where Jesus said, pray after me. We haven't seen Jesus says, you have to be baptized to be saved. That is what you do after salvation. The invitation that Jesus says with come and see is to come and follow. That's what we, we just surrender our life to the victorious king and follow him. He will transform us. He will make us new. But we have to surrender our life. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. I read that and I think back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that, anyone, that he sent his one and only Son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So that's the victorious king that we celebrate at Christmas. With all the productions and with all the movies and with all the depictions of Jesus, don't ever lose sight that he is a suffering servant. That while we look at the cute little baby in the manger, he's also going to be the beaten and bruised Savior hanging on a cross. Because that's the king we need. That's the king we need. This morning, as we uh, have this time of invitation, the invitation's in the text. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Come follow me, Jesus said. Surrender your life. And maybe for some of you, you've been doing this, but maybe there's something in your life you're just holding on to. Maybe there's something you haven't surrendered. Maybe there's something in your life that you love so much that you just can't turn it over to the Lord. Maybe some's struggling with a call to be a missionary or call to ministry, and you just won't give it up. Maybe the Lord's calling you to do something else, and you just won't give it up. Surrender your life to the victorious king and follow him wherever he leads you.
Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you are our victorious king. We're grateful that you came to die. We're grateful that through your death and resurrection, there is forgiveness for our sins. There is restoration from our brokenness. Father, just help us to surrender our life to you. Help us to confess you as King and Lord. Help us to give it all to you and follow you wherever you lead. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.